Oh, it is. We're, we're going to probably have the sofa and cushions and the dinette and our, and our Airstream recovered and we'll take it to an Amish upholstery shop to have it done while yeah. we're up there. That's cool. Just fair, but quality. Oh, you just reminded me we had a, so we bought an old couch. It's a pretty big sectional. We were looking around to find somebody to reupholster it. And we found this guy who just ran this business out of his little garage. And we thought, oh, this sounds great. Anyway, we take this thing over to this guy and he looked a hundred years old. Like he just looked really old. <laughs> and he was this kind of squat, but really <laughs> tough guy. And, and you could tell he'd been pulling fabric his whole life because his forearms were like as big around as my legs. <laughs> and the funniest part about him is he was he was deaf as a post. And so uh-huh. his wife would come out as we were talking with him about what fabric we wanted to choose and so on. She would translate by basically yelling directly into the side of his head. <laughs> that was the way he heard everything. It was so funny. And I looked at Katie and like I said, you know, it's a decent sized couch. I was like, we're going to kill this guy. We're going to be the cause of his death. He's going to be reupholstering our couch and, and he's going to die. You could tell for him it had been no big deal, but he was uh, resilient. Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is Season 1, Episode 5, Character, Service, and Sacrifice. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. The world has too many injustices to count, but one of them is this. The most famous military chaplain in history is Father John Mulcahy, the fictional chaplain played by William Christopher in the TV show MASH. Now, this isn't to say that he wasn't a delightful, hopeful, lovable character, but if he's the only thing you know about chaplains, then get ready for a fascinating episode. Instead of the meek, naive, and sometimes silly Father Mulcahy, I want you to instead imagine a six-foot-eight former Green Beret with a deep, resonant voice and a disarming confidence. Imagine someone who has served in Latin America working against drug cartels in the Middle East fighting terrorists, at the Pentagon advising the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and at SOCOM, the Central Command of U.S. Special Operations Forces. That person you're imagining is Chaplain George Eustra, and he's my guest in this episode of How to Help. Chaplain Eustra is an Air Force Colonel, a rank which, if you're unfamiliar with the Air Force, is only outranked by people with the word General in their title. But it's incorrect to call him Colonel. He goes by Chaplain, just like the other nearly 2,800 chaplains currently serving in the military. Like them, he's also a religious minister in his case, for the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches. Today, we're going to learn all about chaplains, but about a lot more than that, too. We're going to learn about character and extreme circumstances, about a career dedicated to serving others, and about the kind of sacrifices that go without the fame and praise that they really deserve. So let's get going with my interview of Chaplain Eustra by having him tell us about where it all started for him. When I graduated from college in 1982, I was teaching in a private parochial school in uh, central Illinois. That's where I met Rose, my wife. And uh, I was making the whopping total of $8,000 a year. And uh, and I was actually made an extra $200 a year if I coached uh, a couple sports and maybe even drove the bus to school in the morning. 
And by my second year, I was making a whopping $8,400 a year. And I thought to myself, boy, I'm not making it each month. So I did something that I'd always wanted to do. I actually joined uh, the Army Reserves because at that time, that $100 a month seemed like a, a whole lot of money when you're only making $8,400 a year. Yeah. You know, that was a car payment. That was something significant. So I enlisted um, as a college graduate in the Army Reserves in 1983, went to basic training in the summer during between school year and went uh, back the next summer and went to my specialty school, which actually was nuclear, biological and chemical warfare specialist. Hmm. And then shortly thereafter, after teaching a couple years in, in Illinois, I went to uh, Washington, D.C., where I was an aide for uh, Senator Thurman uh, from South Carolina, worked for him for a year or so and in the district, uh, Columbia Superior Court district uh, area, doing some work there. And then I moved back to South Carolina the teaching in a high school in South Carolina, where I'm from. And I went back to uh, officer candidate school, got commissioned as an officer in the South Carolina Army National Guard. My father had been working in the federal government as a Ronald Reagan appointee to the Department of Education in 1987. As that administration was coming to the close, he became a president of a small Christian college in Florida. And he asked me if I'd come down to work for him. So as I was finishing OCS and teaching in South Carolina, I said, what would it like to do? And I found out that there were special forces in the Florida Army National Guard. So I came down to Florida and I went out to one of the units and said, hey, I'd like to be a Green Beret. And they said, oh, really? You'd like to be a Green Beret? Well, let's see about that. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, let's go outside right now and take a PT test. And so I was wearing Dockers blue jeans, no socks and a T-shirt. And they gave me a PT test and I had just finished officer candidate school and I was in really, really good shape and I did really, really well. They said, okay, we'll let you try out. So that's how I got into the the army special forces. I was in third uh, battalion, 20th special forces group in Florida while I was working as at my father's college, Clearwater Christian college in Clearwater, Florida. And so I did that through uh, the mid eighties to the early nineties. It's funny to me how Chaplain Eustra describes this career path in such a casual way, as though none of it was that big of a deal. Being a Green Beret, for example, is a very big deal. It requires exhaustive physical training, extensive tactical and academic training, and even learning a new language. There are only around 7,000 Green Berets at any given time, out of nearly half a million Americans currently on active military duty. Despite the incredible accomplishment of becoming a Green Beret, Chaplain Eustra still won't make a big deal out of it. That's just the kind of guy he is. You know, my experiences as Green Berets is a little bit different from what is today. We were more traditional in what we did. You know, the, the SF mission for years was to train indigenous forces. And so my experience more often than I was training people like working for Ali North in Honduras, training the Contras against the Nicaraguans you know, the Sandinistas or yeah. training the Colombian army to fight Pablo Escobar, um, running airborne schools in certain other countries, you know, partner nations where, you know, Green Berets today do amazing things that are running national strategic policy in Afghanistan and Africa and things around the world that are, their mission sets are so diverse compared to what we did. So uh, I'm still humbled and in awe of some of the things that they do now compared to what little Lieutenant Eustra did many years ago. <laughs> so how does an Army Green Beret become an Air Force chaplain? 
right about the time of the Gulf War, I went to Indiana and began pastoring a church for eight and a half years. But in the meantime, I continued to be a, a officer in the Army National Guard. I just moved from a unit down in Florida up to one in the Indiana area. And so I did that until I came on active duty in 1998. I looked at the pastor to come on active duty and I called the Army. The Army was going to stick me as a chaplain right back. I wanted to be a chaplain now. And I'd gone back to seminary, gotten my degree, and they were going to stick me right back into special forces. My wife and I discussed it, and that was probably not a good thing with my little, our little children at the time. So I actually knew nothing about it, applied to the Air Force and became an Air Force chaplain. So that's how I became an Air Force chaplain, and the rest is history. So I spent 14 and a half years in the Army National Guard, made up to a major promotable took a reduction in rank and came in to the Air Force as a captain in the Air Force. And uh, that's how I became an Air Force chaplain. Wow. I have a lot to say about what chaplains do, but I really like the way Chaplain Eustra summarizes his role. I'm going to let him get us started by explaining how the role of chaplains is actually rooted in the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, so I think when you talk about the role of chaplains, we got to understand that chaplains have two roles. Hmm. First of all, we are the protectors of the First Amendment right to, for the free exercise of religion or the free exercise to not worship, if that's how your conscience sees fit. All Americans, wherever we go in the world, do not check our First Amendment rights at the door just because we may be in another part of the country or we're serving in the military. And so we as chaplains really protect that right. And we do that two ways. We either we perform a religious right or need, you know, by doing religious services for for people, or if we can't perform those needs, you know, my faith tradition is maybe different from your faith tradition, so I can't give you rights or things that you would require. I have to provide you someone, find somebody who can provide those needs. And so that's one of the first things that we do. And of course, we do counseling. We do all sorts of those pastoral type things. And that's one side of what we do as chaplains. The role of a chaplain doesn't stop there. Commanding officers at all levels of military leadership are assigned a chaplain. And this chaplain is meant to participate in discussions about big, hairy problems. And they're not there only for religious counseling. But the other side is we are the moral and ethical advisors to commanders. And that's, his, that's a historical role that we've had for years. I'm very passionate about is to keep this important historical role as a moral and ethical advisor to commander because uh, what you find out just because something is legal doesn't mean it's ethically right or it's the, the the right thing to do and we're finding the tendency today within leadership is a commander is facing a tough decision or something he may look to his lawyer and ask can i do that is it legal but it may not be the right thing to do and so one of my passions as I become a more senior chaplain is to try to reclaim and regain this role as an ethical advisor to a commander. So yeah. basically we provide and we protect for religious freedom, and but we're also moral and ethical advisors uh, to commanders or anybody who's seeking um, some advice and wisdom and help helping them process through a difficult situation they may be facing. So after all this, I hope you can appreciate the big shoes that chaplains are asked to fill. It's easy to imagine a military devoid of religious freedom and devoid of ethical advising. The consequences of that absence are chilling. 
It's one thing to talk about this role in principle, and entirely something else to feel the grit of it. When you think back on on your experiences in your service, what were some of the most tricky ones, ethically speaking? You know, I, I think some of those things, a lot of them are, are born out of one-on-one relationships. It's that soldier, sailor, airman, Marine who comes to your office, shuts the door because they know that the one thing the chaplain has that nobody else has is 100% privileged communication. When you talk to a chaplain, it stays with the chaplain. He won't divulge it to anybody. It is, it is completely private. And I think it's in those moments that I've been able to, to, I think, have the biggest impact on processing through these things. And, and in many ways, it may be post-event. It may be something that happened in the decision that happened in combat. I want to pause here so I can introduce a problem that chaplains face all the time. It's something called moral injury. Most people are familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder, known historically as shell shock. PTSD is a condition brought on by extreme danger. You probably know a veteran, for example, who prefers a quiet evening over fireworks on the 4th of July. This is because the sound of explosions triggers memories and powerful emotions tied to their experiences in battle. This is just one of the common symptoms of PTSD. But there's a related condition that comes from something other than danger. It comes from having to carry out the heavy burden of fighting a war, where we ask our defenders to hurt and kill our enemies. Very few people can do this without experiencing extreme stress and discomfort. And once it's done, you can never take it back. What happens for some of our veterans is an immense weight from feeling guilt for simply doing what we've asked them to do for their country. War is ugly, and unintended consequences happen all the time. And it's our veterans who carry the weight of that ugliness for years after. That is moral injury, where they act in ways they never would otherwise, and it brings the pain of a choice that they can't take back in times past that that person continues to struggle with, whether it's a fighter pilot in Serbia who was called in on a legitimate target and put his bombs down range. But by the time he lands his aircraft back in Italy, you know, he's met at his plane with lights on and with armed guards to get the tapes out of his car because he's being accused of, of killing civilians. Mm. When they do the investigation, they find out that he had you know, taking out legitimate targets, but the Serbians were putting civilians inside military targets like convoys of military vehicles. They would put civilian vehicles within that. And by the time his plane had landed, they had dragged all the destroyed military vehicles away and left the civilian vehicles burning and called in all the press to say, look, the Americans are are, are doing atrocities. And so this this pilot was really struggling and scarred with several pilots with, did I do something right? Did I do something wrong? You know, I was told these were legitimate things. And so he was in this ethical dilemma, you know, this violation of his own personal conscience, his own personal values of taking non-combatant lives when reality was, you know, the Serbians were doing things that were unethical by putting civilians within military targets. But he, he would struggle with that and come see the chaplain. We'd process through those things and try to talk through those things. So, so that, that's, those are where I've seen a lot of opportunities to really make a difference. 
The professionals who treat PTSD have been making progress in treating moral injury as well, in part because their symptoms overlap. But moral injury is distinct enough that new or adapted treatments are needed. For example, we've learned that where PTSD has triggers related to fear, moral injury is marked mostly by feelings of shame. Therapy often needs to focus on coming to terms with what happened and practicing self-forgiveness. Chaplains can play a role in that process. But combat isn't the only venue for ethical dilemmas, nor is it the only way to suffer moral injury. People in all kinds of work may find themselves in difficult circumstances that feel ethically wrong. It's common in medicine, for example, especially during moments like a COVID-19 outbreak that leads to the rationing of care. So moral injury can happen to anyone, not just those in combat. Many military service members face tough dilemmas in much more traditional workplace settings. And then, then there are the same questions. Maybe someone's being put into a difficult situation at work and, and he's struggling with what he should do or the right thing to do. And in doing so, you know, you're able to help him process through possible directions and outcomes and actions that they can take. So that's a fascinating thought to compare the difference between the ethics of combat, like with the pilot you mentioned, versus the ethics of just sort of day-to-day operations in military service. And how do you how do you best prepare? It seems like, I don't want to say there are two sets of separate rules. I think fundamentally, you know, good ethics is is sound no matter what your circumstance. But how do you prepare service members for the challenges of day-to-day operating in an ethical way, but also acting ethically in the heat of combat? Well, I think those are things that different services at certain levels are doing differently. For example, if you're going through special forces qualification course, a Q course, they'll have some some ethical dilemmas within your training because they're living in this this gray area. This is it right or is it wrong? How do I make the right decision? What are the implications of those decisions? And so they they help them try to work through those things. Personally speaking, I, I think the best thing you do is you have to you have to weigh these battles and fight these battles in your own heart and mind before you ever get there. If you're going to be a fighter pilot and you're going to drop bombs on targets that are going to affect the lives of people, you have to already have weighed that decision in your life on whether or not can I do that? Can I take a life? Can I do something that might hurt other people long before you ever get trained to be a pilot? Those decisions got to be made earlier in your life. I, I think of a quote that I learned uh, growing up in just the, the school where I grew up, it said, the test of your, t- your character is what it takes to stop you. Well, you've got to weigh those battles in your character long before you have to make that decision. In the Bible, I'm an, a chaplain, so I tend to default to those things. There's a story of the prophet Daniel back uh, in the book of Daniel. It's, it's really the story of his life, very early in his life. There's a verse in Daniel 1.8 that says, but Daniel purposed in his heart. He made a decision in his heart when he was a young boy that he was going to do the, the right thing all through his life. He was going to be true to his values. He wasn't going to uh, take on the Babylonian ways or the Persian ways. He was going to do God's way all the time. And he made that decision very early. And so if you follow the life of Daniel, whether he's being thrown into the lion's den or he's giving counsel to the, the, the king, he was always true to his value system and his belief system. And I think we have to decide beforehand what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. 
And then we have to consistently practice that throughout our life so that when we're faced, we use the term in the special forces or in the special operations world, when we're on the X, when we're on the target, we've already decided what we're going to do and how we're going to react. And I think it's the same thing in our life. Those are decisions that really are, are made and practiced and executed long before that moment of crisis, that crucible of action that happens that causes us to make that tough decision because we practiced it and we've, we've embedded that into our own psyche and our own moral belief system. Did you catch the wisdom Chaplain Eustra just shared here? If moral injury is the result of violating your core ethical values, then you're more likely to avoid it if you are clear ahead of time about your actions, making sure that they align with your values. There's power in preparation. There's power in purposing in your heart. This is good advice for all of us. If we're careless about how our work and our values align, we will be much more likely to find ourselves in situations that compromise our character. Chaplain Euster is telling us that we need to know in advance what we want our ethical standards to be and then find opportunities to practice upholding them. Yeah, see, that's uh, I, I'm fascinated by that description because there's this idea that the moment of crisis is what reveals the true character of a person. It seems like there are a lot of people who probably prepare for those moments and still struggle or still break down. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. What, what distinguishes the people who say, no, this is right, and I'm sticking with this, versus the people who have gone through the preparation but then find themselves in a moment of weakness because of the urgency of the moment, backtracking on what they had decided to do. We, we, we throw around the term a lot, moral courage. Hmm. I think it's, it truly is moral courage. You know, John Wayne used to say, courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway. And I think it's the same thing. If you go back to the idea of Daniel, Daniel makes this promise in his heart that he's going to do the right thing. And then when the king forbids people to pray to any God but that king, Daniel every day went to his window and he prayed the same prayer every day with the window open so everybody heard him. And he never violated that. He just did what was right. And consistently, if you follow the story all the way through his biography and the narrative of his life, it's the moral courage to do the right thing from the beginning and whatever consequences come are coming. But when it came time to make some really tough decisions later in his life, they were difficult decisions because in the very beginning, he says, I'm not going to eat that diet because I can't eat that according to my faith. I can't pray that prayer because I can't do that according to my faith. And so I think it's the same thing. It's, it's these muscle reflexes, these brain reflexes that have been exercised time and time again. When when I'm an infantry officer and my weapon jams and I have a M4 or M16 type weapon, without even thinking, I do what is called an immediate reaction drill. I put the weapon on safe, I drop the magazine, I pull the charging handle to the rear, I check the mag I check the, the chamber, I put the magazine back in, I release the charging handle, I put the weapon on fire and I fire it. When I come out of the airplane and I have a parachute on and all of a sudden my parachute's not responding like it's supposed to. There are certain things that I do without thinking. I, I check up, I look at my canopy, I pull the risers apart to see if I can untangle them. And there's certain steps that I go through. If um, I'm leading a convoy and all of a sudden we're in an ambush and uh, I know exactly how to respond to that ambush because there's no time to think. These are things that we do in the military 
when you're a pilot every day before you mission brief and you go take off on a mission, they go through your emergency procedures and it becomes second nature. I think one of the most amazing things uh, is good YouTube uh, F-16 crash or some of these other things that are on YouTube. And there's one that you listen to the, the pilots as their, their engine on takeoff starts coming apart. And without missing a beat, their tone doesn't change. They just start going through their emergency procedures on how to restart the engine. They're just going through their checklist that they've been practicing time and time again. And the last thing on the checklist is bail out, bail out, bail out. So they are just going through the whole, you can watch the, the heads up camera and planes nosing towards the earth and it's going into the ground. And all of a sudden they get to the end of the checklist. The engine didn't restart, bail out, bail out, bail out. There they eject. That's what they've been trained to do. And I think it's the same thing in ethics. You've got to practice your personal values and your personal beliefs so that when you're in that moment, I think, can you stand up to it? And now for a word from our sponsor. Leading an ethical career can sometimes feel like navigating through a wilderness full of pitfalls and other dangers. Having good intentions isn't enough. What you need are ethical skills. The Business Ethics Field Guide leads you through the trickiest of ethical challenges. Based on extensive research involving hundreds of dilemmas faced at work and written by authors with decades of experience, the book guides you through the 13 most common ethical dilemmas that people face. It gives you the expertise and tools you need to navigate them safely. But more than just keeping you safe, it also trains you to be an ethical leader that others can follow with trust and confidence. You can find the Business Ethics Field Guide at Amazon, Apple Books, Audible, and at MeritLeadership.com. If I told you that you need to find a way to practice your values, is this the kind of practice you think of? This is about making effort with the goal of improvement real practice. We have to find little opportunities to maintain our character so the big dilemmas don't catch us unprepared. In special operations, there have been some highly publicized ethics issues in the last few years. Perhaps the most well-known scandal was the one surrounding Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, who was accused of killing a captive, unconscious teenage combatant, as well as firing on civilians. That story, plus others from around the same time, created an image that special operations forces was in some kind of moral decay. Congress even ordered an ethics review to be conducted by Special Operations Command. I asked Chaplain Euster about this and about what military commanders wish that all service members understood about the need for ethical behavior. In, in our context in the military, I, I think sometimes they wish they understood the, the national and the strategic implications of the poor decisions that they make. I think that they don't realize that by making this decision, it's not something that just affects them or affects their their mission, but it also affects our whole nation by how we are perceived by others, by whether or not people can believe our word when we start uh, dealing with strategic national policy. There's a corporate ethos or mentality that goes along with that. And what affects, you know, one of us affects all of us. If, and if, if you're a Green Beret and you're a member of a 12-man team, one person does something illegal, it reflects on all of us. I think what's interesting that kind of has been missed 
in the national story of Chief Gallagher and some of the other faux pas that have been mentioned that happened in the special operations world over the last few years that, that the press seemed to miss when they made the assumption that there was a, an ethical issue within special operations. The way these people were really found out was they were turned in by their team members. Hmm. The most sacred thing within a special operations community is the team. That's the, that's the thing that knits us all together. And when you have to find out that someone in your team has done something wrong and it reflects on all of us, and I'm going to make sure I get it right. The fact that those people were essentially told on by the members of their team tells you that I think that maybe there was a good ethical climate in those organizations because they didn't want to tolerate those things that was going to reflect on all of them. And, uh, you know, it's expected that we make decisions that uh, reflect on all of us and we make those decisions, whether they're right or wrong. The truth is that sometimes one person's moral failures brings out the deep ethical resolve in others. You may find yourself in a similar situation someday where you'll need to be the one who stands up for what is right. That takes the kind of moral courage that Chaplain Euster was talking about before. For the next part of this interview, I want to fill in some of the details of Chaplain Euster's career. As I mentioned earlier, every commander has a chaplain assigned to them, called a command chaplain. In addition to tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, Chaplain Euster served in the highest commands that you'll find in the military. He was the command chaplain at the Air Force Academy, where he also taught he also worked for four-star General Breedlove, who at the time was commanding the Air Force operations in Africa. After completing Air War College, Chaplain Euster was appointed Joint Staff Chaplain at the Pentagon, and then Chaplain for General Joseph Dunford, who was the 19th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. If you're not familiar, that is the highest-ranking military leader in the United States. Chaplain Euster's final appointment was at SOCOM, the Special Operations Command in Florida, as you can tell from all of this, he has had an extraordinary career. So uh, you went from serving in the Army as a Green Beret to being an Air Force chaplain, eventually serving at some of the highest levels of military command. What was that transition like from being a special operator to sitting with generals? You know, well, first of all, you don't get to be with four-star generals overnight. And so there's many, many, many years yeah. from point A to point B. And, and so it started by, I think, the fact that I had a little credibility when I came into the Air Force because I was a little bit different than other Air Force chaplains. First of all, I'm six foot eight and I have a big, deep voice. And so I, I have a commanding presence that I've just been blessed by. And that's not to me arrogant. That's just the reality is when you're six foot eight and you walk in the room, you make a presence. So, so that, that's one thing that I've been blessed with. The other thing is, you know, being a former Green Beret, you don't see a lot of Air Force chaplains like that. So it opened up opportunities for me, whether it, you know, one of my generals who later on became a four-star general said, chaplain, if you want to reach fighter pilots, you have to do what they do. And he got me qualified to ride in the back of F-16s to where I have almost 400 hours flying in F-16s to going to graduate school and, and studying character and leadership development and writing the curriculum at the Air Force Academy and implementing that. So I had very unique opportunities that opened up doors, you know, going to war college. 
and then getting picked up to be the joint staff chaplain at the Pentagon and being the chaplain to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and then to a number of other four-star generals. Here, here's what I, I found out and I think is important, Aaron, is so many of those are all relationship-driven. Hmm. You know, I've had relationships with most of my bosses. There have been a couple that I haven't had a relationship with. And when you don't have a relationship and you've been cut out, guess what? You're not the advisor. And so I think I've been blessed to have some great bosses who wanted a relationship with me. And when you have a relationship with people, they, they learn to know you, they learn they can trust you, and then they value you. And I think that's one of the things that I've been blessed with on the joint staff that General Dunford, who I think was a phenomenal American, thought enough at some point that he brought the chaplain back into his conference room. And I had a room in, with a bunch of people with stars on their shoulder. Even if I never said much, there were opportunities when I had opportunities to share and I had opportunities to come into his office and the vice chairman, General Paul Selva, who was a great American as well. But those were very much relationship driven where I had the opportunity to speak truth to power. And you don't always have those opportunities. I could talk for hours about the insight here, but I'll just make this comment. If we want to be an influence for good, to have a chance to persuade others about the right course of action, it will only come after we've built up relationships of trust and credibility. We cannot expect others to listen to us if they don't know us and respect us. Here's a story from Chaplain Eustra about how these relationships can last for years. I can remember a, a fighter pilot who was just struggling with life. And, and we were in a position where we were both deployed away from home. He would medicate himself with alcohol at night. And that's not healthy. And uh, so I would go get him at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And we would go do something for an hour or two every night just so he wasn't medicating himself with alcohol. And we would just talk and process through things. And and, and help get through things. And he's become a very, very dear friend through those years. And that's been, you know, 15, 16 years ago since, since we walked those journeys. And, uh, you know, he went on to a very, very successful military career, but he's still a very close friend of our family. And it all began because I walked into him one day and, and was just kind of being a smart aleck with him. And he was being a smart aleck back and he said, you know, and he wasn't a religious person at all, but he figured, you know what, I might be able to talk to that guy who's kind of a jackass chaplain and maybe we can uh, build a relationship. And when I look back night after night after night, I was alone and away from my family. He was alone going through difficult times. And, but the end, end result was we became very closely bonded as friends and those are the things that help, has helped me through the years. And he's helped me through problems in my life. That bond of respect and has, has really been a, a precious treasure to me. Okay, time for some final reflections. Thinking back on the reputation that he built and the experiences that he's had, I asked Chaplain Eustra if there were any that were most important in shaping his personal ethics. I, I don't know that I would have thought about it in that term. I think when I look back at becoming a Green Beret and, and, and making it through that part of life, first of all, it was a long time ago. A lot of things have changed through the years. But the thing that stands out to me most is what Churchill said 
in the light of the blitz and everything that's going on in, in at that time in, in England, he just basically said, never, 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 never quit. Whether you were in the special forces qualification course or, or you were on a mission where you were walking long, long, long distances and you were exhausted and you didn't want to take another step. It was always about never quitting, always finishing. And if you take that and you synthesize it down to the essence of ethics, that's what it is. It's boiling it down. What's the right thing to do? And you do the right thing every time and you don't quit doing the right thing. And I think that's an important lesson to learn for, for us, whether it's, you know, not quitting in the middle of the Green Beret qualification course, not quitting in the middle of a, a marathon, that whether you got to walk the last 10 miles, you walk it and you get across the finish line. Whatever you do in life, you don't quit. You're there to do what's right. You're there to serve your employer. You're there to serve your God. You're there to serve your team, all those things. We don't quit on each other and we don't quit on ourselves. And so I'm not going to quit on my my value system. I'm not going to quit on my theology. I think it's more difficult knowing when to vocalize um, what I believe is right or wrong from my worldview and knowing when to interject myself into a situation where it may or may not be appropriate for me to do those things. But for me, the life lesson I learned out of being a special forces officer and being anything else in life is not quitting. And so that, that is from my personal life to my professional life to my spiritual life. And if I do fail and if I do fall, I get up, I brush my knees off, I apologize to who I need to apologize for and I get back on the horse again. Don't quit. A common misconception with ethics is that moral courage comes down to one moment, to one hard decision. The reality is that it takes hundreds of decisions. Every time you decide to do the right thing, you'll have to decide again minutes later, and again hours later, and again days later. The secret to moral courage isn't courage, it's endurance. Being a chaplain is very hard work, by the way. It often requires difficult conversations late into the night. It means helping carry the heavy burdens that others can't carry anymore. Some of the most fulfilling times in my life are when those bosses of mine, whether they have lots of stars on their shoulder or they were just uh, a captain, squadron, you know, commander, just wanted to talk to me. We shut the door and they made a yelled and screamed because their boss was saying, telling them to do things that were not right. Or maybe they were going through a heartache or frustrated and they just needed to cry. And I'll be honest with you, it didn't matter if it was that young person down at the far end of the rank structure or that person with lots of stars. I think the, the fact that I was ushered into that sacred trust to be able to just process and walk that journey with them, that, that they said, I trust you enough and you've earned my trust enough that I'm going to invite you into this quiet, sacred spot. We're going to shut the door. No one else knows this. It's just me and you. And I trust you with that information, but I have to talk to somebody and I want to talk to my chaplain. Those are the moments that I will remember the most. There are, there are a lot of special times, you know, whether it was a young airman in the middle of the desert or Iraq coming in, shutting the door 
and putting a gun in his mouth and said, chaplain, give me one good reason not to pull the trigger and don't tell me Jesus loves me. Well, that kid was in crisis and he needed somebody. And I was glad that he came to see me or someone who was even more significant with that, dealing with uh, the stresses who just said, I just need to talk to somebody and you're the only safe person I got. Please come in here. <laughs> those, those are the times that I, at the end of the day, I will remember the most because they were built on relationship and they were built on trust. And I would dare tell you that those relationships did not end when I ceased to be their official chaplain anymore. I continue to be their friend long after that. Well, it's time to end. So let's end with this. The true essence of being a chaplain and the kind of motives that we could all take as an example to follow. I I think when you wear the uniform and I think as a minister, I think you've got to learn pretty early in life that it's not about you. You can't allow yourself to be selfish with your time and with your talent, with your ability. Because if you're worried about, you know, how much time you're spending, you're going to be very frustrated because it's, it's not about us, it's about others. And when you get those priorities right, and it's always a fine line because I have a responsibility as a, a husband, I have a responsibility as a father, I have a responsibility to all these other people who are vying for my finite amount of time. But I also have to be willing to maybe go talk to somebody when it's not convenient for me. People don't generally go into crisis between eight to five on Monday through Friday. It's usually in the middle of the night. It's usually, you know, that suicide happens at a, at a horrible time. That um, accident happens at a difficult time. That child who's lost happens at an unpredictable time. And so I think you, you learn very quickly that you can't be selfish with with your time and ability. And oh, by the way, if you're selfish about who you are, how you're perceived, you're not going to act ethically because you've already started from a, a fallacy. You've already started from a bad point. You're already, already determining that I'm going to do what's right for me with my time and all these other things instead of what is the right thing to do. And so I think that ability to be unselfish is very integral. And as a, as a minister, as a chaplain, as an officer, we realize that we're here, first of all, servants to our nation, servants to those who are entrusted to our care, and then somewhere down the line, servants to ourselves. God bless chaplains. What an example for all of us. Something or someone has been entrusted to your care. I believe this is true for all of us, and I hope we can all be there to help, to comfort, to hear, and to give courage. Imagine a world full of chaplains. I'm so grateful to my guest and friend, Chaplain George Ustra. Getting to know him has been a tremendous opportunity, and I'm thankful that he spent the time for this interview. If you're interested in hearing some of his sermons, we've linked to them in the show notes. If you enjoy How to Help, please take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast app. It really means a lot to us, and it helps other people discover it, too. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get future episodes automatically. Please take a look for our newsletter, too. You can find it at how-to-help.com, which is also linked in the show notes. 
Now be sure to listen to our next episode with social entrepreneur and superwoman, Melissa Seavey. She's traveled the world working with local artisans to help them build international markets for their products. And she has some amazing stories to tell. She's also one of the most resilient and cheerful people that I know. We're grateful as always to Merit Leadership who sponsors this podcast and to our production team, which includes Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. Our music, as always, comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Your trust and your time means the world to us. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been How to Help.